Father, thank you, Lord, for our teaching, for the teaching you provided, Father, in this word, and the teaching you will provide in our hearts through the Holy Spirit's work. Thank you for a place where it is honored and taught. And we pray, Lord, this would be the beginning of a long time of teaching, Father, a long history of working to serve you in this city. I pray, Father, you would have that goal for us. We've endeavored to, um, to start this with that intention, and we hope that's your, uh, your intention for us. And, Lord, we pray that the word today would just build this body before me, the men and women who have come tonight to hear it, that they be built up in it, strengthened by it, encouraged in it, convicted, perhaps, Father, by it, and brought into a closer walk with you, Father. That's what we want out of the word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 2. In our teaching last week, if you were able to hear it online or if you were here to hear it in the room, we saw Matthew taking time to show us a contrast. Remember before Jesus, as he's born, when he come before him, you had Magi coming before him and you had Herod hearing of him. And so you have this contrast between the Jewish king, who is absolutely not interested in a new king, and Gentiles from a foreign land who were very much interested in knowing about this Jesus. The opposite reactions of Herod and the Magi illustrate two main themes in this gospel, the Davidic covenant being fulfilled by Jesus and the Abrahamic covenant being fulfilled as well. Jesus is that king promised to David, and he is the savior for all nations promised to Abraham. He's the son of David and the son of Abraham, as we heard at the outset of this gospel. But you also notice that in those two fulfillments, you have opposite reactions. You have Herod rejecting Jesus while you have the Magi's accepting him, the Gentiles embracing him. That's a trend that's going to continue, as you know, and it becomes another major idea in the gospel. We'll follow it wherever it comes up from time to time. But for now, let's get back into what we see in chapter 2, following the departure of the Magi, having given their gifts to Jesus. Now let's look at what comes next. So turn with me to chapter 2, verse 13. We'll start reading there. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. I'm going to pause there. So we hear the Magi have departed, and right after they leave, there's an angel that appears to Joseph. It appears to Joseph in a dream. It's the second time now that Joseph has received instructions from an angel through a dream. This is the second time after that time when he was first approached to be told that Mary was not pregnant by a guy, that her story was accurate, she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Now, in this case, the angel says to Joseph, you need to get up and you need to flee and go to Egypt because you need to escape Herod because he's trying to kill the baby Jesus. The threat is so imminent, in fact, that the angel tells Joseph, if you notice, to get up. That is, wake up from this dream that I'm talking to you in and get out of bed and grab Mary and and Jesus, of course. Don't leave Jesus. They're going to do that later. For now, (laughs) take Jesus and go immediately this night to Egypt. So he obeys. He wakes up. He picks up Mary, packs their things, heads out the door. Now, we don't know where they went in Egypt exactly, but it's only about 60 miles from Bethlehem to the Egyptian border. So they could do that in maybe three days of walking, three to four days. And if they went all the way to the capital of Egypt, which in that day was called Alexandria, it's about a 500-mile journey. So that probably means they stayed for some period of time, given the distance. In fact, in verse 15, we're told they stayed until Herod died. We'll learn more about that timing later. 
Now, though, we understand why the Lord directed the Magi, as they came to worship Jesus, to lavish this baby with those three gifts that we studied last week. Remember, I said those three gifts have considerable value. Obviously, the gold was very valuable, but so were the spices. And those gifts that Mary and Joseph received are now the means by which they will afford to travel into Egypt and live there for some period of time. You know, life in that day was no different than it is today in this regard. You know, people didn't just live for free. If they don't have a place to live, they've got to buy a place or they've got to rent the place. If they don't have food in their own backyard, they've got to buy food. Joseph and Mary, by all accounts in Scripture, were not wealthy. Jesus didn't grow up in a privileged home. And so if they're going to make this kind of a flight and stay in Egypt for months, imagine trying to live somewhere outside your home. Imagine going to a hotel and staying there for seven, eight months, maybe a year. How much do you think that costs? Well, in relative terms, it would have been similar for them in their day under their economy. The items that God ensured they had in the form of the gold and those spices, they are very portable. They are actually better than cash because they'll work in any country. Everyone valued these things. They could have been sold easily, traded anywhere. God in his sovereignty ensured that this family would be equipped for the flight that he knew they would have to take when the time came. And by the same token, he also ensured that the place he would send them would be willing to receive them. How did he do that? Well, by this time in history, just a few decades earlier, Egypt had been conquered by Rome. And so now Egypt was part of the Roman Empire, which would have allowed Mary and Joseph to travel there freely from one end of the empire to the other. You could travel. But interestingly, the Egyptian province was not under Herod's authority. So though it was part of the Roman Empire, Herod could not enforce his orders there. So it was a safe place to go. That made Egypt a safe haven for anyone who was in Judea and wanted to escape for whatever reason from Herod. But before even the Romans came along and before Jesus was born, this pattern existed in Scripture. Many of you probably recognize this pattern, right? That Egypt is the place people in Judea would flee when they had some reason to get out of town. Remember back when Judea was called Canaan, you saw Abraham flee from a famine and go down to Egypt to escape. And then he got into trouble with Pharaoh and his wife. Remember that whole routine? If you don't, it's in Genesis. Later in Genesis, you see Jacob's family. This is Abraham's grandson. Also, fleeing into Egypt to escape a famine. That's when Joseph was on the throne, or number two in command in Egypt. That scene of Joseph in the position of power that he had, bringing Jacob and his family out of Judea and down into Egypt, encouraging them to come and to get away from the coming famine, that ended up with Israel staying there for several hundred years. And during that time, the people of Israel were eventually enslaved. You remember the story? If you haven't, you remember the movie, Charlton Heston? Remember the whole thing with the people enslaved? Well, In that time, as Pharaoh put the people of Israel in enslavement, that bondage ultimately resulted in the Lord sending Moses down to free God's people from that time they spent in Egypt. Now, the reason I went into that background is because the Exodus story holds a deeper connection to the events that we're seeing here than you may realize. Notice in verse 25, Matthew says that Jesus' time spent sojourning with his parents in Egypt was a fulfillment a fulfillment of prophecy concerning Messiah. And he quotes from a prophet, he says. He doesn't name the prophet, but we can go find it. It's the prophet Hosea. And in fact, it might not be a bad idea to take a look at it with me if you know where Hosea is. It's one of the minor prophets. And if you have your Bible with you, you flip or scroll or whatever you do with your Bible these days. And go look at it. It's it's the first verses of chapter 11 in Hosea. And here's what it says. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. 
The more they called them, the more they went with them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols, and yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. And it goes on from there. I read that because I want you to notice, if you listened or if you're reading it, that in the context of that place in Hosea 11, you hear the prophet speaking as if the Lord, saying that the youth or this son is actually the entire nation of Israel. Did you catch that? The Lord is speaking to his people Israel, calling them his son, calling them a youth. Notice in Hosea 11.2, he refers to that son, though, as they, plural, meaning Israel as a whole. And this is not unprecedented. You may even remember another verse in which God does something similar. Back in Exodus again, you hear God speaking to Moses about Israel and how Moses is going to confront Pharaoh concerning his people in bondage. Listen to this. In Exodus 4.22, the Lord says this to Moses. Well, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son. There it is again. My firstborn. So... I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. And that's where we get the Passover from, you remember, right? My point is, it's common for the Lord to refer to his people Israel, that nation, as a son of his, a firstborn son. And in Hosea, the Lord says, Israel, his son, spent time in Egypt, and then the Lord called his son out of Egypt, referring to Israel leaving during the Exodus. But wait a minute, if the prophet Hosea was talking about Israel when he said, I call my son out of Egypt, then why did Matthew tell us, why did he interpret that what Hosea was saying was a prophetic statement about Jesus? Which is it? Is Israel the son or is Jesus the son? Well, what Matthew's doing here is using a method of interpretation of scripture that was common among Jewish rabbis. In fact, the rabbis of Israel taught that there were four methods of properly interpreting Scripture. And they recognized that these four methods were all ways that the Lord expected us to use in interpreting His Word. Now, you only use one method on any given passage. There's not four ways to interpret a given passage. But when you look across the Bible, you can see different kinds of Scripture that are interpreted or intended to be interpreted in one of four different ways. These are methods of interpretation. Now, the hard work, of course, is knowing which of those four methods you're supposed to use in a given situation for a given scripture. In this case, Matthew applies a method of interpretation that the rabbis had called remez in Hebrew. And that word literally means suggestion or picture. That is to say, this particular method of interpretation recognizes that there is some scripture given to us as a picture of things yet to come in the future, as a foreshadowing. Of later things. In the case of what Hosea wrote in 11.1, that is, my son comes out of Egypt, that prophet was describing a literal exodus of Israel. That's what he was describing. But he was also presenting it to us as a picture of what would happen to Messiah later. And that's this Remez method of interpretation, to recognize that there's more going on here than meets the eye, that there's a picture involved. And of course, the Lord being the author of all scripture, using men to write it, He creates this intentional connection from that earlier event to that later event so that we would see it. And in that way, he's telling us something about the later event by asking us to make this comparison. So in this case, the Lord is pictured here as a son coming out of Egypt in Israel's experience of the Exodus. 
what basically we're learning is it confirms that God sees Jesus as his son. That's the point of this application. That he's not merely a prophet. He's not merely a good man God sends as an example. He's literally a son of God. In the case of Israel, they are metaphorically his son. In the case of Jesus, he's literally the son of God. And that comparison is intentional for us today. It's giving us confirmation the Father calls Jesus his son. Now, you may be sitting there right now saying, well, that's a stretch. I don't see how you could have seen that until Matthew pointed it out. Well, you're right. There's no way you would have known that Hosea 11 was intended to be a picture of the Messiah until the New Testament writer of Matthew told you that that's what it was meant to be. No one saw it before Matthew told us about it. It was Matthew who gives us the connection. But friends, that's not new. That's how all scripture works. You may not have realized it, but that's all of what you know it works that way. Only after later things are fulfilled do earlier prophecies make sense. You know, don't ever think yourself real smart because you can go back into Isaiah today and you can see prophecies concerning the Messiah and you can recognize them as messianic. Don't think that's really a brilliant thing now. It's easy now. That is to say, if you're a believer, it's easy. You can see, oh, look here, it says he will be, he will be striped and pierced for our sake. That's a reference to the cross. Yeah, but if you had gone back in Isaiah's day, you wouldn't have known that. You wouldn't have known that. That's how God works. That's how he prefers to reveal himself. I like to think of it like a game of Jeopardy. You know the game, right? That game, you have to have the answer. That's what's given. And then you have to form a question that matches the answer. Everybody know how that works? More or less? If you're not at home at 5.30 every day, you probably don't notice this. (laughs) The Lord does this in Scripture. He gives us the answer to a question, but it's a question you never thought to ask. And then later He gives you the question, and you see the connection in Scripture. You see how they fit together. And as you see those things, here's the fun part. As a Bible student, what you begin to recognize as you see this is that earlier piece of writing was truly inspired. How much chance or luck or coincidence do you think it would be if someone like Isaiah, writing thousands of years ago, could describe perfectly crucifixion, or the Psalms for that matter, could describe crucifixion before it was invented, and much before we knew that that's how the Messiah was going to die. So you can, you can have one or two opinions. It's the greatest coincidence in the history of literature, or it's proof that there's an omniscient God writing Scripture. And if it's proof that God is writing Scripture, then you need to believe what it says. That's the effect of this game, if you want to call it, that God uses in how He shows you something early and then shows you more of it later. For example, Hosea gives us the answer to this question we didn't even know to ask. What was the question? Well, how does Messiah enter into the land? The answer is that he comes out of Egypt, which means he had to go into Egypt, which is the story we're studying right now. God does this so that you make these connections, so that you'll witness his wisdom, you'll witness his sovereignty, and it will lead you in time, if you study the Bible properly, it will lead you in time to gain a high view of Scripture. That's how we say it. You will take on a high view of Scripture. A high view of Scripture means you believe what it says, even when you don't understand it. A low view of Scripture says, I'm only going to believe the parts that I can understand. Or maybe I'm just going to assume the whole thing is a made-up story. And it's interesting to me how many Christians find themselves in that lower area of understanding, not because anybody told them that was the best or right way, but because no one ever showed them the height. If no one ever shows you the height of Scripture, you're not likely to find it on your own. You're going to assume things that aren't necessarily true. 
As Peter told us in his word in 2 Peter 1.20, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter says, No view of Scripture is a matter of your own interpretation. You ever heard somebody, maybe in a small group or in a Bible study, turn to you in the middle of some discussion about the Bible and say something like this? This verse means to me, and then they go on from there and tell you what they think it means. If you've ever been in that situation, you've just watched someone violate Peter's rule. Right? They're now making Scripture a matter of their own interpretation. As if we can just guess, and if we get close, that's fine. If we don't, it doesn't matter. That's truth to me. If that's how you find truth, you're susceptible for whatever the enemy wants to bring your way because that's not how we uncover the truth of the Bible. And I should add, by the way, that's not how you uncover the truth of anything. I mean, have you ever heard someone say in a math class, this math equation means to me, why don't we do that? Well, of course we don't do that because there's only one right answer to a math equation, only. And it doesn't matter what you think it should mean. It only matters what it actually means. And for some reason and probably because of poor teaching or just the the state of affairs in the day-to-day, for some reason the church as a whole seems to be sliding away from that certainty over the Word of God, and we're ready to entertain whatever someone wants to tell us they think it means, especially if we like what they tell us it means, right? But we have to take the same approach to the study of Scripture that you basically take to the study of anything else. You want to honestly seek for what the text actually means, that is to say what God meant when He wrote it, You don't want to rely on opinions. You don't want to guess. You know, the best thing to do if you don't understand something is say, I don't understand it. Don't fill in gaps. What I found is if you fill in a gap of knowledge because you wanted to know something desperately and you didn't have the answer, but you couldn't stand not having the answer, you'll fill it in with a wrong answer. And you do two things really badly at that point. Number one, you walk around with the wrong answer and you tell everyone the wrong answer. Number two, you stop looking for the right answer. Because in your mind, you've already got an answer. So now you're unteachable. I think a lot of the debates we see in the body of Christ over theology come because there's a lot of people out there filling in gaps and then defending them. Let's go back to the study at this point. I just want you to have this high view of what we're studying. And as we look at these things, as Matthew gives us this insight from the Old Testament, he's going to use all four of these methods. Before we're done in this study, I will have shown you all four of these rabbinical methods in which you can interpret Scripture properly. He's going to use a second one here before the night's over. Let's go back now, verse 16. And we're looking now at Herod's reaction to the birth. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. And he sent and he slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. All right, earlier, if you remember from last week, when Herod met the Magi at the palace, remember he asked them that question? Well, when did you see that star appear? He did that so that he'd have some sense of how old the Messiah might be at this point. And now you see how he's using that information. But he didn't want to tip his hand, so he told the Magi, look, Go find this guy, worship him, and then tell me where he is because I want to come worship him. The Magi leave at that point. That was Herod's mistake. 
His mistake was trusting the Magi because he should have put a tail on the Magi. He should have had them followed. He should have escorted them. He should have gone where they gone. Because once the Magi got out, saw Jesus, and then were warned, as we heard, not to go back the way they came, then he lost track of them and he couldn't figure out now where the, the Lord was, what his location was. And so he's upset. We hear that here in the text. Now, if you were a normal, well-adjusted, rational human being, you would just give up at this point. I mean, you would just have no other recourse. What are you going to do? You don't know where this guy is. It's a baby. It could be any baby. But Herod is anything but normal, and he's certainly not rational. So at this point, Herod is going to take action against the child. Here's why that's crazy for Herod to do. We know from history that at this point in Herod's life, he is on death's doorstep. He is less than a year away from death. And he didn't die a sudden death. He died, from what we can tell from the historical records that are written about him, he died of probably either kidney disease and or gangrene, neither of which kills you quickly, especially gangrene. So this guy's wasting away. He knows he's not living much longer. So knowing that, it's very unlikely that a baby king is going to have enough time to get old enough to really threaten your reign. You're going to be out of this world before that ever happens. He should know that. And it's not as though he's worried about his sons inheriting his throne. Remember, Herod killed three of his sons already because he was jealous of them and worried they would try to overthrow him. This is simply a man who is paranoid and egotistical, and he is going to take any action he can to get his way. And in this case, he takes a drastic action to prevent this baby from threatening him. There's some records of of the Caesars of this day writing about this incident and remarking at how crazy this guy is that he feels threatened by a two-year-old. One of the emperors of Rome was quoted as saying, it's better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. And here's why. Remember, Herod practiced Judaism. He didn't eat pigs. (laughs) Matthew says that around 4 BC, Herod ordered all the male children, two years or younger, in and around Bethlehem to be killed. And we're saying 4 BC here because we know it's not long before Herod dies. And on his orders, Roman soldiers marched that few miles from Jerusalem at the garrison where they were stationed into Bethlehem, and they go around executing every male baby they can find in that city with the sword, executing him. He stipulates here that children two and under die, and that gives you a hint as to what the Magi must have told him when he asked about the star, right? Notice Matthew says Herod's orders were based on that response. So again, that tells us that the star appeared probably a year or more earlier. So Jesus was at least a year old or so when the Magi visited him. And now Herod's sort of rounding up just to make sure that he didn't miss anybody. And he says, kill everyone two years and down, just to be safe. There must be a special place in hell for this man, sitting right next to Hitler and whoever invented telemarketing. (laughs) Now Matthew says these deaths... Of all these children, I mean, this is a horrific moment, right? We can just try to imagine it, and it's even as bad as the news is in our country today, as, as is typically the case now regularly, even as bad as that is, this exceeds it. I mean, this is terrible. It's hard to imagine it. Every child dead. Matthew tells us this event was also a fulfillment of prophecy in the Old Testament. In this case, it's Jeremiah. He names the prophet. It's Jeremiah 31. Again, if you have a moment, you might turn there. Jeremiah's a little easier to find than Hosea. It's a little bigger. Jeremiah 31, 15. Let's look at what Jeremiah says in its context from which Matthew drew this quote. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, 
Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children will return to their own territory. All right, now this passage is similar in some respects to what we just saw in Hosea. It's similar in the sense that Jeremiah's prophecy here is, again, not a prophecy concerning Messiah, not specifically. He's writing about Israel concerning the coming destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the area of Judah under the hands of the Babylonian army. Jeremiah was warning the people of Israel that the Lord was preparing to send a calamity in, in the form of this army, as a judgment against Israel for their sins against him, for their idolatry. It's a fulfillment that took place in 605 B.C. That's when the army of Babylon invaded Judah. They destroyed Judah. They killed many Jewish soldiers who were fighting against them. And they took captive many sons of the people of Israel, made them slaves, hauled them all back to Babylon, and many of them never returned as a result. Now, when that happened, of course, the mothers of all of those sons would be weeping. They'd be lamenting, as you would expect. Their sons are hauled off by a foreign army. And Jeremiah writes in chapter 31 that Rachel would be weeping. And Rachel, as you remember, is the name of Jacob's favorite wife. And it became a poster name for the mothers of Israel. Just like Jacob became a name for Israel, and Rachel became a name for the mothers of Israel. Just a symbol, if you will. So when Jeremiah says the Rachels of Israel will be weeping. He means the mothers of Israel will be weeping. They can't be comforted, he says. And yet the Lord adds something that Matthew didn't record, right? If we read one verse further, we see the prophet telling the people of Israel, reassuring them, hey, your suffering is not the end of the story. This event will actually be cause for Israel to see hope in her future. And this is what happened. Babylon's destruction of Judah was part of a larger plan that God was at work doing for the sake of his people to purge idolatry out of the nation of Israel. If you know anything about the history of Israel from what you may have read in the Old Testament, you'll recognize that there was that pattern of Israel falling into idolatry and then worshiping false gods, setting up ashram poles and high places and all, and then there'd be a new king who might show up for a while and he'd clear out all of that stuff and send them back to worshiping Yahweh in the temple. And then he'd die, and the next guy would come, and they'd go right back to worshiping all the idols. You recognize that pattern? It went on for hundreds of years. God warned them through the prophets, and they said, if you keep this nonsense up, there's going to be a price to pay for this. And they kept going. And now through Jeremiah, he's saying, time's up, it's coming. And you're going to be lamenting when you see it. But it's not the end of the story. As the nation of Israel was taken captive by these people... They were pulled out of the land and taken to Babylon where they could not participate in that idolatry any longer, not to the extent they had. One of the things that you saw going on in the nation of Israel during the time that this idolatry was happening was child sacrifice. Did you know that? Did you know there was a time in Israel's history where mothers took infants and put them on altars dedicated to demonic gods and killed them as sacrifice to those gods? That's how bad it got in Israel in the years leading up to this judgment. After the Lord takes Israel into captivity, you may know the story, they're there for 70 years, and then after a while, Babylon's replaced by a new empire that frees Israel, lets them come back to the land, they come back after 70 years, they reestablish the temple, they start over and again in their land, and life goes on from there. Eventually Jesus comes and so on. But one thing never happened again. One thing never came back. Idolatry. In the history of Israel, they have never gone back to idolatry since the Babylonian captivity. 
Now, they rejected Jesus, and they've done other things that aren't great, but they never started worshiping a false god again. In other words, they learned their lesson. It was a great hardship for Israel to see their families torn apart, taken prisoner, killed in battle, and all the rest. But it was better than allowing that nation of people to continue in the status quo, sacrificing their children on altars and the like. I mean, think about the cruel irony here. You have mothers of Israel weeping over sons taken prisoner. These are, in many cases, the same mothers who were willingly sacrificing other sons. You know, what is it? Do you care about your sons or not? It's the deception of sin working out in their minds. So once more, in Matthew's case, we find him looking back on a moment in Israel's history and interpreting it according to one of those rabbinical approaches. Now, in this case, he uses one of the other methods that I mentioned. This one is called drash in Hebrew. And that means explanation. And this is a method that recognizes that there are certain principles that you can find over and over and over again in the Word of God. And when you come across a passage that is teaching on one of these principles, then you can draw connections from other Scripture that also share this same principle. You can, you can learn across all of these Scriptures and build out your understanding of the principle. Matthew wants us to understand that the same principle that was at work in Jeremiah 31 is at work again here in the story of Jesus. That if you look back at the circumstances that were terrible for Israel in the case of Jeremiah's day, you can learn something about the same terrible circumstances that are happening now in Bethlehem. It's this idea of learning from one to apply to another, to explain another. That's a proper method of interpreting Scripture. So now the question is, what's the principle here that he wants us to connect? Well, there happens to be a third quote in Scripture that perfectly summarizes this principle. So why don't we use that one to explain it? It happens to be one that many of you probably know by heart. Romans 8.28 We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. In Romans 8.28, Paul describes this principle. It's the same principle that was at work in Jeremiah's day. It's the same one that Matthew's referring to here in Jesus' day. That's why he applied that verse from Matthew. This principle says that our world is full of sin, full of evil, full of hatred. And so as a result, bad things happen. Bad things happen to you. Bad things happen to me. Bad things are happening all the time. And when you see proof of this on the news, as you did today, or in your neighborhood, or in your family or in your own life, when you see that principle at work, that sin is everywhere, and so its effects are also everywhere, you begin to understand that there is a certain amount of calamity that is just going to happen naturally, and you can't escape it. And I'll tell you, friends, the Bible does not promise that a believer will escape bad things, or that believers will get through this life unscathed. And there are those out there, I think, who would try to tell you that who would try to paint the rosy picture of the Christian life. The problem with that is not only is it untrue, but when your experience doesn't follow with that teaching, you start to wonder, can you doubt the Word of God or believe it at all? I mean, the pastor told me I shouldn't expect these things, and yet they're happening, so now what? The contrary is true, right? A believer knows pain. Believers know suffering. Just like unbelievers in that respect, because we're all in this together. After all, trying to live in this sinful world, without suffering the effects of it, it's like trying to swim in a pool without getting wet. Right? You can't. It's not possible. If you get in the pool, you will be saturated just like everyone else is. And if you live in a fallen, sinful world, you're going to get hurt. But the Bible doesn't stop there. 
The Bible goes on to promise that even in the midst of the bad things that you and I will experience in our lives, even in the middle of that, God is still on his throne. And he is still in control of everything. And he has a great and wonderful plan for the children that that are called by him into faith. And he is at work ensuring that all life circumstances will come together to produce eternally good outcomes for his children. But friends, sometimes the only way that he can produce those very good eternal things is by allowing bad things to enter into our life for a time now. And you see that in your own life. I mean, you should see it in your own life. I mean, a simple test will prove it. Do you pray more when everything is good or when it's not so good? This principle tells us that you can always trust that the Lord is working in the midst of trial and turmoil and fear and troubles. And throughout Scripture, the Lord is going to remind us of that truth. Things happen. Bad things happen. As the saying goes, bad things happen to good people. It's okay. It's normal. But that doesn't mean God doesn't care or that he's not at work through those circumstances. And that principle keeps showing up because he wants us to keep that at the front of our mind. You know, there's that principle present even in childbirth. Do you know that when God instituted pain for the woman in childbirth, he was giving us a visceral picture of this very principle that we're talking about here, of Romans 8.28? Because the woman endures the pain of bringing forth life, which pictures Jesus going through the pain of his death for our sake, And then, as a result of her experiencing that pain, what is the outcome? She experiences the joy of new life, forgetting the pain that preceded it, the Bible says. And likewise, the pain of Jesus' death was necessary to make possible the joy of your new spiritual birth. So God has embedded this principle all over the place because it's important that we don't forget it. Pain first, joy later. Suffering now, eternal, righteous joy in the kingdom later. If you flip those, you end up with a prosperity gospel and a lot of very disappointed people. Our lives on earth mirror this principle so that God makes sure that we don't misunderstand His good purposes. He's working for you and I right now for the moment that we'll enter the kingdom in our new eternal bodies. He wants to make sure that everything you and I experience in our life on this earth will happen so that it will mold us into His image. So that when we show up on day one in the kingdom... We will be as much like Christ in our own capacity, our own maturity, as we can possibly be. We'll be perfect. We'll be sinless. But our spiritual maturity is the question here. Who will you be in character? What will you have as knowledge of God? Those things are not given to you at 100% on, on the day you walk into the kingdom just because. You're going to be sinless. You're going to be without that drag weight on you. But who you are in Christ is a function of who you become in Christ now, the Bible says. So your prayer life, your study of God's word, your willingness to repent, the softness of your heart, your willingness to reconcile or serve others, all of those things are part of what God wants to develop in you, and he will do a much better job of that if you are dealing with adversity than he will if you are, as they say, fat, dumb, and happy, if you're blissfully ignorant. In Jeremiah's time, God used their suffering of Jewish mothers and the rest of Israel to produce such great repentance in the hearts of Israel, that they dare not offend God again with idolatry. It restored their desire for a true God. It ensured that when Jesus did come to that nation, they were actually in a position to hear him. They weren't busy running off after Baal or some other false god. And so Matthew quotes Jeremiah because he wants to remind you and I right now 
that the terrible events in Bethlehem have to be understood according to that same principle. You have to recognize that those circumstances, as bad as they were for those families, they were part of the love of God at work for the sake of Israel. And I'm telling you, I know that it takes a lot of spiritual maturity to understand what I just said. That a loving God is not inconsistent with the outcome of Bethlehem. That's why God's Word reminds us of this principle over and over again. The death of those children was necessary. It was a necessary evil. Not an evil God wrote. It's an evil Herod did. But it's an evil God harnessed. And why? To lead to the greatest good the world has ever known. Which is that after the children were dead in Bethlehem, Herod was satisfied and therefore he lost interest in seeking after the Messiah to kill him which allowed Jesus then to survive and grow and as a result become our perfect sacrifice and offer you the salvation that you and I sit in right now. Let me ask you this. Would you trade your salvation to help those children in Bethlehem? That's a tough question, isn't it? The Bible's not asking you to do that, of course. What I'm pointing out, though, is if you want what you think is good under every circumstance, watch out. Do you know more than God? You see, we all would want to save those babies, but what if I told you that in doing so, Jesus dies a premature death and doesn't live to to make the sacrifice that you and I depend on today? Wouldn't be such a clear-cut answer then, would it? That's the thing about history. And that's the thing about being in God's place. He sees the whole thing. We never do. And so our decisions will always be limited in response or in, in comparison. Friends, our God is a God of resurrection. He brings dead things back to life. He takes great loss... And he turns it into great gain. He wipes away tears. He takes away pain. He gives us ultimately relief from our sin. And he promises to do those things in the eternal realm. But not necessarily here and not now. And Matthew quotes Jeremiah to remind us that mourning in Bethlehem will one day give way to joy. Just as it did in the time of Jeremiah. It will do so again for the nation of Israel. Because it made possible Jesus' righteousness. Now I know we've all suffered. And I don't want to stay on this much longer because we need to finish. But it really is easy when you're in the midst of suffering to get really absorbed in that issue, whatever it is. It it can seem like it's never ending. Just don't forget, by your faith you have overcome this world, Scripture says. And the enemy can take a shot at you. He He can take a chink in your armor. He can knock you down for a while. But what he cannot do is change your eternal destiny. And if your hope is fixed on Christ and where you're going and what eternity brings, you won't be as worried about whether life here is the perfect world you thought you could make for yourself. You'll accept some of the trial, and more than that, you'll look at those trials as opportunity. You'll understand that God must be at work doing something here. I like to say it this way. If God didn't want to do something big for me, He wouldn't be going to so much trouble to make me miserable. You know, I mean, there's some truth in that, right? God works all things to good. You just got to recognize that there's something good planned in it. Otherwise, you might miss the opportunity to take advantage of it. Let's finish with two more verses tonight. Verse 19, it says, When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Sort of the back end of the story, right? The way he gets home. It says here he comes back after Herod dies. Again, we don't know how long this was, but it probably was less than a year, given what we know already about the history And we know Herod dying in 4 B.C., Jesus probably being born near the end of 6 B.C. Remember, they counted backwards, so 6 became 5 and then 4. So he was probably around 6, 5 B.C. Now it's somewhere around 4 B.C. The Magi saw him when he was a year old. He probably spends less than a year in Egypt. Here we are. 
But here's what also was probably happening. The wealth that they received from the Magi, it was probably just enough to cover their expenses, and it was almost done. Wouldn't that have been an encouragement to this young family, by the way? To see how God had provided so perfectly for their needs. They didn't know they were going to Egypt. They hadn't saved up for a big long-term vacation in Egypt. They just get told overnight, go, and they happen to have all they need for that. But even after they got there, they didn't know how long they were going to be there. Weren't they thinking the whole time, honey, we're kind of down to our last myrrh. What are we going to do with this? Right? But here again, just at the point where that's probably drying up, they're ready to come home. And as they get home, they're no longer rich. But they never lacked. They never lacked. Joseph learns the news of Herod's death through the angel vine. You know, I have to imagine by now he's getting accustomed to this, right? This is the third time now an angel's talked to him in a dream. He must go to bed every night with a notepad on his chest, right? But I think it was probably also obvious to him that raising the Savior of the world was not something God was willing to leave to chance with this couple, right? He's, he's kind of working them through the whole process of parenting right from the start. That's kind of helpful. And then they leave him in the temple, as we're going to find out later. Man, they couldn't catch a break. The angel says, get up, go. You can go back now because, as he said, Herod is gone. The one who's seeking to kill the child is gone. And Joseph obeys. He gets up and he comes back. We're going to see next week what he does when he gets there. But I want to finish tonight looking one more time at the connection between this story and the account of Exodus. Because there's a really interesting parallel here that helps us see what God is saying about it. With what we just learned now, the rest of these details in the story, you are now able to see an even greater connection between these two accounts. And the picture goes a lot deeper than just the connection that Hosea gave us about coming out of Egypt. Because it turns out that many of the elements in the Exodus story match up to moments in Jesus' life. In fact, the key figure in the Exodus story, Moses, is a picture of Jesus in many of the things that Moses does. For example, Moses originally fled from Egypt, remember, when he grew up in Pharaoh's house. Then he kills the slave's taskmaster, remember that? And then he fears for his life, so he flees Egypt when he's 40. Well, he flees because the Pharaoh was seeking to kill him, remember? And that's mirrored by Jesus fleeing the promised land when the king, Herod, is seeking to kill him. And then in the Exodus account, the Pharaoh commanded that every male Hebrew child be killed by being thrown in the Nile, remember? And here you see another king, Herod, ordering every male Jewish child to be killed in Bethlehem. And furthermore, Moses was rescued from that sentence of death by a mother taking him out of the Nile, remember? In the basket. Well, Jesus was rescued from his sentence of death by a mother taking him across the Nile into Egypt. And the stories turn on a similar moment. In Exodus, we're told the Pharaoh dies, so it's time for Moses to return to Egypt to free his people from bondage. And Matthew says, Herod dies, so it's time for Jesus' family to return with Jesus, so Jesus can free his people from bondage to sin. In both cases, it was an angel of the Lord that told them, it's time to go, the one who is seeking your life has died. Oh, and there's a ton more. There's a ton more. There's one moment, in, you may know in John's Gospel, where you see Jesus going up to the mountain to pray while the 5,000 are gathered below, and then he comes down and he feeds them with fishes and loaves. And then later he gets on water and walks across water. If you go back and study that, you can hear it online in the John study. That whole thing is a picture of the Exodus. So you see the point clearly, don't you? I hope you do. The Lord isn't just the author of Scripture. He's the author of history. 
And he's writing things and matching it with his work in the world to make a story for us so that we can't miss it. He orchestrated both the events of Moses' life and later the events of his own son's life so that he could bring them both about exactly as he wanted so that we would see those connections. And then he wrote about it in advance so that when we see them match up to what was written, we'd know this is from God. And he's alive and he's working in the world. He's not just sitting somewhere waiting for all this to happen on its own. He's in control of everything. Look, you can't explain how events match up that perfectly and are explained beforehand in the Bible, except an omniscient, omnipotent God. There's no other explanation. It takes more faith to believe that this is coincidental than it does to believe that it's just what it says it is. Remember this as you live out the history of your own life, day to day. And when you get into those dark moments where you feel like your life is crashing down around you, everything you're experiencing has been designed by a God who loves you so much that he was willing to die for you. And even if he hasn't revealed every detail of what's coming or why it's happening, you can be still sure that he is doing it for some good end in your life. Because we know that one day we will leave all this mess behind and we will receive our reward in eternity. And when you and I get to that vantage point and we can look back from that vantage point, and I should add only from that vantage point, to everything that happened to us, you and I will finally understand at that point why it had to be the way it was and what good God was using it for in our life. And I have a suspicion we will also look at that moment and say, if I had thought like this back then, I could have used those moments a little bit more productively than I did. Well, we can start thinking like that now. It's not too late. And I know what else we'll be doing. We'll be praising him for his, for his wisdom, for the plan, for how it worked. Where today I think we're tempted to, to moan about it a little bit sometimes. That's okay. But keep your eyes on eternity. Let's go to prayer. Father, give us eyes for eternity. Though we can't know what you know, can't understand what you understand, Father, we know you. And we know your character. We know your love. And that's enough, Father. It's enough to trust you and to know you that we can accept what comes. And we can be sure that in a day to, to come when we're eternal and with you and, and past all of these experiences, we'll understand it then. And that's enough for us now. I pray, Father, that each of us in this room, whatever we're experiencing, whatever trials and difficulties we're engaged in right now, perhaps things, Father, that are so pressing on our mind even now, we can barely pay attention to what we're hearing. Our mind is already running back to those problems and how to solve them. Remind us, Father, that solutions will come one way or another. Time will pass. Eventually, this life will end. The only thing that will remain, Father, is your word and the work that it's done in our hearts. I pray, Father, we will, we will not get so distracted by trying to solve our problems that we miss the opportunities to gain from them. Help us understand those things now. As we've read and understood in your word, Father, let us live it out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.